0: Lord, thank you again that we can be here, that a charter school gymnasium can, on the Lord's Day, be transformed for your glory, your purposes, into the house of the Lord, and that for our purposes, um, that these verses that we read, particularly in the Psalms, about entering the house of the Lord and entering your courts with praise. That's this place for us this morning. So we pray that you would be present with us, that you would help us to think through these details about the uh, book of Psalms and that it might draw us closer to you and that you might make us more holy because of it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So let's keep the keep the review alive here so we, we're remembering these things as we go. All right, word to describe the Hebrew canon. Somebody over here on my left side. Tanakh, very nice. The Tanakh stands for what three parts of the Hebrew canon? Law, prophets, writings. Yes, you guys... Yes, I see Paul figuring out the fact that you're all holding it in your hands. Um, and then the, the law is divided into what two categories? Go ahead. You, yes, yes, the former and the latter. Did I, sorry, sorry, that I misspeak? Prophets, former, and latter. Okay, and then our writings are divided into pre-exilic and post-exilic. Okay, let me help you out here. Let's go. Okay. All right. Who, who, are the main three characters in the book of Samuel? David, Saul, and David. Yes. <laughs> Saul, David. Yeah, yeah. Saul, uh, yes. Not Sam. Anyone. Correct. Samuel, Saul, and David. Correct. All right. And uh, what are the three notable divisions in Kings? In the book of Kings, three kind of sections. Glenda. The golden age, yes. Yes, division. There we go, and then the exile. And the, that golden age is associated with whom? Solomon, right. So you have Solomon's reign, at least during when things are going well, then after him, divide the kingdom, they end up in exile. Uh, very good, in the last days. Um, the latter prophets were also known as... It's another term for the latter prophets. Profits? Uh, the Writing Profits. That's correct. And that's important to know. Um, since we know that former and latter is not a reference to chronology, what is helpful about knowing that division of former and latter? Correct. correct. I got Dennis answering absolutely everything over here. He's, you're working for five stars today, buddy. Yeah, you got a full night's sleep. Okay, yeah, so remember the former laid the groundwork. They're the doers. The former laid the groundwork for what the latter ones are described as doing, um, basically as kind of commentary Uh, after that. Let's see. All right, we're starting to get into things a little bit more recent. The two overarching themes of Isaiah and really of all of the latter prophets. What do you have, Glenda? Glenda? Yes, that is right. Desolation and restoration. And we saw specifically in Isaiah, it has the combo of desolation and restoration. At, it bookends the entire, all of Isaiah. There's desolation and restoration at the beginning and desolation and restoration at the end. And that is a theme that kind of runs throughout all of, um, all of the prophets, or all of the latter prophets in particular. Okay, using Jeremiah, what did God bring against his people? Uh, there we go. Lawsuit. He brought it. Yeah. Indi- good. Yeah. Indictment, lawsuit. Either of those are fine. So remember, Jeremiah was sent and basically God said we, we looked at that legal language. God was bringing an indictment against his own people. And then a very important thing, just to have memorization, where in Jeremiah is a, is a future hope described? Yeah. Yeah, we got some really close stuff. Jeremiah. Where where specifically in Jeremiah? The new covenant? <laughs> I hear lots of numbers. Jeremiah thirty one thirty-one. Yeah. Jeremiah yeah, I know yeah. Jeremiah thirty one thirty one to thirty-four. But if you just remember, and this is really helpful, you're gonna wanna know that for for being able to flip through your Bible when these conversations come up. Um, that have to do with covenants, you're going to want to know where in the Old Testament there is a very direct correlation to the New Covenant, and that is Jeremiah 31-31. So commit that to memory. Okay, in Ezekiel, there were lots of exotic images. What is helpful? So this is one of my kind of vague bonus questions. What is helpful about all of that exotic language that is being used in Ezekiel? So for as much kind of, if you want to say mystery, that is shrouded in all of that, like, fantastic, exotic language, wheels and foreheads and, you know, all of this that's going on, in what way is it helpful that God is giving that to us? What do you have? That is correct. So when we read it, we don't want to take it uh, be overly allegorical, and we don't want to be overly literal. So that part is true. We discussed that, but there's something um, uh, just practical about that that might be overlooked if that we talked about it a little bit. Jamie, did you have? Were you raising your hand? No. Okay. So just a reminder that all of that language is being used. For instance. Those beginning chapter that uh, in Ezekiel chapter one, where it's giving these these uh, incredible pictures, it's describing in a physical way the glory of God, and we can't. What we don't want to do. So go into what Glenda was just talking about is we don't want to take those descriptors and go, okay, well, what does the bear face or the lion face mean in light of today's? Like we don't want to break it down that much. Somehow and in some way that of course is glorious and beyond our understanding we have this we have god's glory that's been put to words and that's been turned into a picture and how that is helpful for us is we see then that picture of god's glory leaving remember we talked about that he it, the glory goes to the east to leave the temple, and then it goes even further and leaves Jerusalem entirely. And so what's helpful about all of that imagery is that now you can picture God's glory as a thing, in a way, as bizarre as it is being pictured, but then it is actually leaving the building, so to speak. So that's where that practical sense of these kind of exotic images can be really helpful. Um, Let me see, what else do we have here? Oh, and then PJ went through the 12 last week, what analogy, PJ pointed this out, what analogy is used throughout the 12, both in a corporate sense and also in the individual books? So throughout the theme, throughout the 12, and that you could see repeatedly in the individual books of the 12. Yes, yes. marriage, the intimacy that takes place in marriage or bride and groom. Those things were all, you can see that over the over the, the whole thing, and as you dig deep into them, you see lots of language that has to do with a marriage covenant or, unfortunately, the breaking of a marriage covenant, um, etc. So that's what was going on with the 12. All right, so that brings us today. We've finally made our way to the Psalms. The title, Psalms, is just translated praises. And then, here we go, a little random quiz time. We're gonna, so as far as the author... There are 150 psalms. Let's hope I've done my math correctly here. But there are seven identified authors. And then there, is, uh, there are 49 of them that are anonymous. We don't know who the author, author is. But for the other 101, there is an author identified. So if you guys want to throw out some names, if you think you know... There we go. Get the big one out of the way. So David... Is believed to have written seventy-three of them. Cora, ooh, I hear a Solomon. He's he's got a couple. Uh, I get these next up. Hang on, I gotta look for myself here. There we go. And then I think I heard Cora, right? All right. Uh, I heard okay Moses good he he gets credit for one you know what I'm missing no am I I'm so... okay yeah all right I had it wrong okay and then we have this this is where it gets really so we have heman the Ezra height and we have Ethan the Ezra height I have no idea, don't ask Don't ask me their relation, I don't know. But we do know that they are both <laughs> Ezraites. And then we have 49 that are anonymous. So we have all of these different authors. Oh, I didn't even write. Uh, I didn't put the date, and this actually is kind of important. So as far as the date, looking at um, about 1400 BC, to about 400 BC. So why that is important is that the oldest psalm would be Moses's psalm. And so that's the one that um, is estimated to be approximately 1400 BC. And then Psalm 137 actually takes place post-exilic. So you're talking about the span here of approximately a 1,000 years, that over the course of a 1,000 years that these were written and before they were kind of arranged and all put together. But what's being expressed within the Psalms dates back from Moses all the way up to after they've had the temple, the temple's gone, they've gone into exile. So, those, so the Psalms cover the entirety of that span. The Psalms now, we just transitioned into the writings. So I've been running you through this quiz every time in the beginning, um, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So this is our first, our first time getting into the writings now. Writings um, as an overall category are there to instruct God's people how to live out the covenant. In fact, uh, I think I have a couple of quotes here. Right, my crease. The, uh, This is a quote by Mark Futato. The purpose of the third division of the Hebrew canon is to instruct God's people in how to live out the covenant. And then he had a separate quote. The book of Psalms is a perfect introduction to this third division because, as we shall see, the purpose of the book of Psalms is to instruct God's people in how to experience the abundant life for which God has created and redeemed them. Close quote. So, if you have um, the handout there and you look at it, they divide cleanly into pre-exilic and post-exilic. But Psalms itself, as far as the writings, don't fit into that because pre-exilic and post-exilic is a chronological break, and the Psalms date from prior to to after. So, so Psalms. That's why, as well, it makes sense that. That sometimes the Psalms is used as shorthand to include all of the writings because even the because the book of Psalms itself actually spans chronologically um, both both ends of that spectrum um, one thing about the Psalms as well is that despite the fact that it was authored over the course of a thousand years, clearly by the time Jesus shows up on the scene the the Psalms itself even though we 're talking about all these different authors over that much time is considered an actual book so let 's look at a couple of verses uh, luke 20 forty two Carol, then you 're going to be acts 120 and then samuel you 're going to end up reading luke twenty four44 so mark go ahead with luke 20 forty two.
1: For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand.
0: Okay, so notice here how um, it says that David said in the book of Psalms. So in these little, we don't think much about these things, we just read right through them and don't think twice. But right there, just by the fact that the New Testament is referring to the Psalms as David said this in the book of Psalms. So it's giving credit to that kind of codification, classification of, um, you could say, canonization of the book of Psalms as, as an entire book. And then we see something similar in Acts 1.20.
1: For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office.
0: There we go. So there is an assumption at that time that the book of Psalms as, an entirely, uh, as, a, as, a, as a whole thing is uh, in, to be included altogether. And then I mentioned that sometimes Psalms is used as a reference to the entirety of that third part of the Hebrew canon, the writings. And the, I think that it's the... Go ahead and read 2444, see what, yeah. see what happens here.
1: Now, Jesus said to them, These are my
0: words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There we go. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So, um, we see Psalms being used as shorthand for the entirety. And when you realize the dating period and everything going on, that all of that really does make sense. Um, I really liked this quote as well. Something to think about when you, when you come to the Psalms, and if you've been reading the Psalms for years and praying through the Psalms, this will probably um, ring true for you. Quote, The Psalter is primarily a manual and guide and model for the devotional needs of the individual believer. Close quote. That's Edward Young. And so Psalms itself is a collection of poetry, and mo- many of the poems are made into hymns, you know, there actually there are churches that will only sing psalms, but it doesn't mean that psalms is automatically and exclusively hymns. It is a collection of poetry, many of which ha- have been turned into hymns, and that um, people in the Bible have sung, and that we, of course, sing today, but we don't want to look at psalms and go, oh, well, it is, it's, it's all it is, is a book of hymns. It's actually a collection of poetry that's used for other things. Um, and what it does is it creates for us a virtual temple. Now we've talked a fair amount here about the temple itself and the imagery and what does when when we look at the temple and the temple's design, what is it pointing to? Sean Points to the glory of God. Excellent answer and absolutely true. There's something a little more precise I'm looking for. Garden of Eden. There we go. It's, it, it, it's, there are direct ties to the garden, which then, by virtue of that, ties to uh, the glory of God and our connection to, uh, to him. But think about this. The temple had wood carvings of flowers, palm trees, and, and pomegranates. All of that was to create um, an atmosphere of a garden the temple was on a mountain and it was facing east the garden was on a mountain its entrance was from the east the temple contained the Ark of the Covenant and the garden had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in both cases if you touch them you will die so there's this the temple is a replication of the, the garden Sean has some input here
1: Um, thanks for all of that, Pete. And so th- the other thing we should keep in mind, too, when we think about the temple and we think about worship um, is that the tabernacle was the first structure. Right. And the tabernacle was a replica of the heavenly tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Um, the temple was the permanent... St- so the tabernacle was built to be a temporary structure that they could set up and tear down as they're moving through the wilderness and as they're traveling, right? But then once they settle... And then then eventually, you know, God gives David the vision to build the temple, and then it's built by Solomon, and you have this permanent structure, right? So I, it does, in a sense, right, harken back to the garden. It also um, looks to the eternal realm of the heavenly temple and, and the worship of God. Absolutely. Um, so it, it is that, you know, when when Moses was on the mountain, he received a vision of the heavenly Temple or tabernacle, and uh, and so then, you know, God gives them instruction. And so and so then, all this is realized for them to uh, to worship God here on Earth. It's kind of like a virtual worshiping, uh, uh, a virtual version of heavenly worship, right? I mean, that's what is kind of being done there. It's a simulation. Anyway, just so thought I'd bring those things in. Thanks.
0: No, I appreciate that. that's a perfect segue, actually. So if you think about this, God is over all of creation. It's not like there's somewhere that he's not present. He doesn't need a temple to say, well, that's, if you want to meet with me, you've got to go to the temple. Otherwise, you know, God's not there. That's not the case. And yet God is the one that gave Moses that, uh, the, those instructions to build the temple because what is unique about the temple is this is where his people meet with him in a special and in a unique way. Right. He is saying this is where you come, and that's why you know Moses met with God in a unique way on the mountaintop. Then he says, "Okay, I'm going to create, essentially, recreate this experience in the form of a tabernacle." And when His glory entered the tabernacle, nobody could approach it at that point. And then you get to later the the permanent structures you mentioned of the temple, and so we have all of this imagery that is embedded into the temple design, the decor, everything that's there that's pointing back to the garden, not because the garden is the end state, but because what took place in the garden is that there was unstained um, communion with God in that place. The glory of God and us being in his presence is really what that's about, which is why the tabernacle and the temple is created to say, hey, this is going to be the place where there's going to be unstained communion with God. And of course, you, we are stained, they were stained, and so things had to be done, the blood thrown on the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies, all of those things. Of course, later you have Christ coming, tearing uh, tearing the, uh, the curtain so that now we have the church and everything like that. The point being, and great use of uh, language that I was going to bring up, which is a virtual temple. So here we have the physical structure, originally the tabernacle, and then the temple that's, that's representing something, this communion with God. And what Psalms does is it does the same thing. It provides a virtual temple in the form of words. So when we go to God in the Psalms, there's so much, you know, descriptive illustrative language that's being used it's it's not just narrative this is poetry because it is creating pictures in our minds of meeting with god and and so the psalms is creating this virtual temple and you can see how that would be effective for instance you know david authored 73 of these psalms and you're talking about a virtual temple, the temple didn't exist during David's time. So when David's authoring these psalms that describe meeting with God and the and being in God's presence and pouring his heart out to God in one respect, at one end of the spectrum, he's just he's at wits end right psalm 51 he's like oh what have i done and lord forgive me and you know if and, and then on the other end you have these praises that say lord how how great you are and so this entire range of emotions that take place there is a sense of a virtual temple that's taking place in words that certainly david could make use of and then those that would have experienced or be praying the psalms in the exile, you know, after they've been exiled. Now they are praying these same things. And now we, too, pray through these psalms devotionally because it is in anticipation of what we're going to experience in eternity uh, with God. So the psalms essentially help to recreate that experience. And so as a devotional book, the psalms are well-suited to be prayed through. We don't just read them in the same way that we might read one of the narrative accounts to find out what happened next. You know, we're not just looking at David and Goliath, okay, and, you know, how did that, how, you know, theologically what happens when you look at where David started and then how he defeated uh, the giant Goliath and everything like that. This is different than that. This involves that poetry, and so you pray through it in a way that you wouldn't really pray through The account of David and Goliath, you know, reading the verses and praying the words of of the account of David and Goliath, that doesn't, uh, that really doesn't work out the same way. And so, as I just mentioned, you know, when we're in God's presence in prayer, we express our deepest sorrows and yet also enjoy the greatest joys of unity with him. The entire range of emotions is, is expressed in the Psalms. So here's a quote from John Calvin. Quote, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, in anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Close quote. <laughs> so, you know, Psalms have all of these things that just draw us away, you know, that, that just consume us. Fear and anxiety and, you know, or as he says, uh, perplexities. It's just the things that, that, that consume our emotions are all of them contained Within the book of Psalms, we can identify with the whole thing, regardless of if you 're an introvert or an extrovert or you know you're um, you 're good in front of people you don't you want to hide it doesn 't matter. you can identify with all the different emotions that take place in the book of Psalms as far as structure, um, what we have this is what we 're going to do first of all is Who's my next reader, Wayne? Okay. So It's divided into five books, but Psalm 1, actually, and uh, Mark preached through this um, a little while back, but Psalm 1 provides the purpose of the entirety of the book. So, if everybody would turn to Psalm 1, and Wayne is going to read it for us. It's a short psalm The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff chaff that that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, so this is, you can see it most clearly in those first uh, couple of verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but, and here is your purpose, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, The Hebrew word behind that, which is Torah, can be translated as law, it can be translated as instruction. So again, we see the Psalms, and I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but Psalms is a book of instruction. And yet, it's taking place, not in narrative form, it is taking place in a poetic form. So it is a devotional book that connects to your emotions and yet is tied directly to God's law and God's instruction. So, in a sense, you want to read the book of Psalms in light of his law, you want to think about this is what God has commanded. So with his moral law, you say, okay, everything is measured against that standard. And when you look at the standard, or the standard of God and the law, just like we do as part of our service, and, and it takes that order of service, it's because what never changes are the truths of God's instruction, the truths of God's law. And then we look at that plumb line and then we read the Psalms and we gauge our emotions based on that. This isn't just f- flying by the seat. You know, the, the psalmists aren't aren't just, I feel hot today and cold tomorrow and uh, with my emotions and so I'm just kind of writing whatever I feel. This is all against that plumb line of God's instruction and God's law. And where do we find the Lord's instruction in the five books of the Torah? And so this is where, you know, the design of things is just fascinating how these things work out, is that the Psalms, you know, they were authored by, by all of those men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit over the course of a thousand years, and yet we see when it is compiled it is put into five divisions. They're what, what they call five books, and in fact, I don't know if you've noticed it, but even in your Bibles, it will say right there, book one, over the top. And then you'll get a little ways in, you know, chapters one to 41, and then you get to the beginning of chapter 42, and it'll say, book two. It'll get to chapter or to uh, chapter 73, and it'll say book three, etc., as you see the breakdown here. And so, it's in these five, and the idea is that just as there are the five books of the Torah where you have in a more narrative fashion God laying out his instruction, God laying out his law of right living, likewise he is laying out five books, five poetic sections that correspond with his instruction that we read and see those together. Now this is what is super neat too, and they came up with these divisions is what you have here, where I've written, where I've done this, these are seams, like stitching, seams, S-E-A-M-S. So let's just look and you will see how how this works, how they came up with this, so where am I? Monica, so we'll just as we go through here, we're just going to read these four. That tie they, these are the seams between 41 and 42, between 72 and 73. You get the idea. Go ahead.
1: Hello. Okay. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen.
0: Okay. So what we're seeing is blessed is the Lord, everlasting. Amen and amen. I put seams. Another thing I should probably write up here is each book is ending with basically a doxology so that's what you heard right there all right then when it gets to the end of chapter 72 we have another one jamie psalm 72 verses 18 and 19. blessed
1: be the lord the god of israel who alone does wondrous things blessed be his glorious name forever may the whole earth be filled with his glory Amen and
0: amen. All right, you're hearing this, this doxology, and then it goes amen, amen. You know, it's, it's beautiful. Seam, doxology, all right, between chapter 89 and 90. We have our seam at 89, verse 52.
1: Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.
0: Oh, man, this is fun. We should do this for the whole service, <laughs> uh, or for the whole class. Um, Psalm 106, verse 48, the last seam between the fourth and the fifth books.
1: Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord.
0: All right. That's, I mean, that is great stuff. So you see these sections and these books. Now, I will tell you, I didn't write it up here. As far as there is a, how, what the, each of these books kind of describe or what is at the center of each one varies a little bit. I didn't want to write all that stuff up there. But I will say this, that is absolutely clear, is that, it? Well, let me put it this way, it is a good idea when you read Psalms and you're praying through Psalms, not to randomize it. I know it would be easy to do, and I know they're, um, to kind of jump around, but it's actually helpful, now that you know what you know, to start from Psalm 1 and to continue through to Psalm 150, because of the way that it's designed, it is a crescendo of praise. It is building. And so we see at the very beginning that it's, um, it's always to be read in conjunction with the law, but that these praises are leading all the way to a, a great crescendo at the end. And we're going to read those uh, read something there at the end, but let me read a quote here. Um, Oh yeah, so, so to be clear, none of these, the, the books, uh, or I'm sorry, the chapters of Psalms, they are not chronological, um, but here's a quote. Its structure is perhaps best compared with that of a cathedral built and perfected over a matter of centuries in a harmonious variety of styles, rather than a palace displaying the formal symmetry of a single and all-embracing plan. Close quote, and that was uh, Derek Kidner who said that. Um, so it's a good idea to read it in the order that it was not because it's linear or or chronological. It's just because of that crescendo idea. And then the other thing, as I've already mentioned, is you always want to keep God's law in the back of your mind. And you know, isn't it? You know, our culture wants to do away with the law, you know, in churches, you don't hear people say, most churches talk about the law in that sense, or they kind of want to do away with that, or they say, hey, this is New Testament. And so we're just all about love and relationship and Jesus. But it's the emotions of the Psalms that are connected to that law. So let's look at a few places that make it clear that all of this has that connection in place. So we are, we already read Psalm 1. So Whoever has the microphone there, go with Psalm 40, verse 8. Uh, I'm sorry, 19, 7 to 11. The next person is 40, verse 8. The next person is going to go chapter in chapter 105. The next person, 119. Just turn there and then I'll get you there. So, Psalm 19, 7 to 11. <clears throat> Sweeter also than honey and driplings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Amen. Okay, and then Psalm 40, verse
1: 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart.
0: Okay, we have uh, the law within our hearts. Psalm 105, verses 43 to 45. What psalm was it? Uh, 105, verses 43 to 45.
1: So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with sinning, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise Yahweh.
0: Praise God indeed. All right, Joe, you're next. You're going to read the entirety of Psalm 119. I'm just kidding. Uh, Verses 17 to 20. Psalm 119, 17 to 20. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Okay. So in light of these psalms that we, we just read, is God's law viewed as this relentless taskmaster? No. Right? There's a longing to keep them. A love for God is to have a love for his law because you love the lawgiver. That is what he is giving to us. And that's what we can, as we read the Psalms and we experience the emotions of the Psalms. Yes, we are, the emotions come from our personal experiences today. We have our own issues, our health issues, family issues, financial issues, Issues about enemies and issues about work. All of these are real issues that impact our day-to-day living. And so we go to the Psalms and we pour out our heart in the same way that that the psalmist did. But they're always in connection to our God and to his law. And um, so that it might result in us trusting him and glorifying him. The Psalms are filled with both lament and praise and praise but we 're always looking back to god 's instruction, okay I want to finish with uh, so Psalms is this book of praises and it comes to a crescendo for the reader this this uh, grand finale and so there is a five part conclusion so take your take your Bibles and turn to chapters uh, to chapter one forty six and so I want to show this to you this is look at the way that the final five chapters capture Psalm in this this crescendo. So it says, the first verse here of Psalm 146, Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. And where it says that, there is a Hebrew word behind there that you probably know. And it is the word Hallelujah yah yah is a shortened way just like we say yahweh here frequently yah is a shortened way of saying yahweh so when it says in the hebrew hallelujah it is saying you are being commanded it's a mandate you praise yahweh and so you have here this culmination of the psalms where it says, hallelujah, so which gets translated in our English Bibles with an exclamation point because it's a command. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. Turn to Turn to chapter 147. Praise Yahweh. And it goes on, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Chapter 148. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh from the heavens. Again, this is the same thing. It's another hallelujah that starts the next psalm. Psalm 149. Any guess? Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Again, the Hebrew right there is hallelujah. And then finally, Psalm 150 at the end. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. And so you see this culmination taking place through the entirety of these five books that connect essentially to the five books of the Torah, having both of those things. This is how I'm supposed to live. It's a devotional book. It connects to my emotions. I can express myself to God the same way these psalmists did, always with his plumb line of his law, of his instruction in view, but ultimately ending with this crescendo of praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's why it's organized in the way that it's organized. Got one minute left. Anyone?
1: So you read the beginning of Psalm 150, but it actually ends the same way.
0: Ah, thank you. Praise y'all. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Psalm 150, which our brother is preaching through. So he was making the point there, verse 6, then the very last verse of all of it. Let everything that has breath praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. Great stuff. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Uh, praise Yahweh, indeed. May you receive that praise uh, in the service we're about to participate in. May you receive it in the singing in the preaching of the of the word and the participation in uh, the supper, Lord. May you be glorified. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.